Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome back to part two of our incidentaloma lecture on vascular and uh, biliary and gallbladder disease. So we were talking before about the different aneurysms. We spoke about abdominal aortic aneurysms, how we follow those. We spoke about splenic artery aneurysms. We spoke about renal artery aneurysms. And now let's speak about hepatic artery. Hepatic artery is not uncommon. I think many times it's actually missed when it's present on CT. There are a number of different reasons for hepatic artery aneurysms. Uh, IV drug abusers, so you see mycotic aneurysms. We can see traumatic aneurysms either due to prior biopsies or real trauma, particularly stab or gunshot wounds. It can also be due to several other processes like polyarthritis nodosa, fibromuscular dysplasia, inflammatory disease such as pancreatitis. I've seen hepatic artery aneurysms develop in patients who've had biliary tract surgery. Now, again, how do you manage these? Well, typically what happens, just like with splenic artery and almost with renal artery, a treatment is generally recommended if you pass two centimeters in size, okay? For hepatic artery aneurysms, uh, Abbas in one of the articles felt that multiplicity and non-atherosclerotic origin was linked to an increased rupture rate, and so in those cases, it was felt to be more aggressive. Criteria for when is it safe to observe visceral artery aneurysms is not perfect because there's not the same number of we see like with splenic artery or with renal artery. Uh, you can see that in this article by Abbas, most of them did well conservatively. And so, for example, if you have an aneurysm like this, it's one and a half centimeters. What do you do with this aneurysm? Well, that's kind of a good question. How do you handle that aneurysm? Again, it's very important to recognize that there is an increased incidence of rupture, but what do you do? You're not going to resect it. You go in and embolize it. Again, a lot depends on the patient's uh, clinical history. Now, when you look at the mesenteric vessels, there are other areas with aneurysms. Pancreatic duodenal artery aneurysms are felt to be at a higher risk for rupture. These are typically going to be treated. Now, the thing about pancreatic duodenal artery aneurysms is often related to patients who've had pancreatitis or patients who've had surgery, such as a Whipple's procedure. Uh, at the stump, you can get uh, an a aneurysm or pseudoaneurysm. We also see uh, aneurysms in the mesenteric vessels from the SMA to the celiac artery. Again, the question is how do you manage them? We are seeing them more commonly in older patients, and also it's not uncommon to see focal dissections with aneurysm dilatation. So it is indeed tricky. Most people are going to really do conservative treatment. Now, what else? I've spoken to you about arteries, but what about veins? Are there any problems we have with veins? Now, I have seen several cases of portal vein aneurysms, and those are managed conservatively for the most cases. We also speak about dilatation of the gonadal vein. Here's a good example of a patient where the left gonadal vein is prominent. And in this case, the gonadal veins on both the right and left side are prominent. And you contract them down to the pelvis where there are very prominent veins in the parametrial regions. And when you look at the axial views, you can see this prominent vasculature. And this is typically described as pelvic congestion syndrome. Now, I have to admit, most cases that have prominent gonadal veins, the patients are asymptomatic. 
we do describe it, and I will say that if, if the patient has pelvic pain, this may be a cause, but I don't suggest a workup when I see typically prominent gonadal veins. Now, this whole um, question about how do you manage it is addressed a bit in the ACR paper. Now, ovarian veins originate from the plexus and the broad ligament in the ovaries and fallopian tubes and communicate with the uterine plexus. They then cause the interior to the psoas muscle and, and the ureter. The right ovarian vein typically drains into the IVC and the left into the left renal vein. The left renal uh, ovarian vein and the left gonadal vein and renal vein are what we typically most commonly will see. Now, there have been several studies, autopsy studies have shown that valves are absent in the cranial portion of the ovarian vein in 15% of women on the left and 6% on the right. The valves are incompetent on either side in up to 40-ish percent of patients with a higher frequency in multiparous women, resulting in dilatation over 8 millimeters and incompetence in many asymptomatic patients. So the answer is kind of what I said. Um, just simply mention it, but little needs to be done. There was an article a couple years ago where they looked at prominent gonadal veins in renal donors and asked the patients after they donated the kidney and the vein was harvested, did they feel better? And you know, not uncommonly when you ask patients a question, they typically will say yes, and a majority of patients said yes, they felt better, they having no pelvic pain. Of course, they never reported pelvic pain before the question, but nevertheless, it's still something that needs to be thought about. Now, in a case like this, when you look at the gonadal veins or ovarian veins and they're over a centimeter, particularly look at the left side, this is where you know the patients may indeed have pelvic pain. In these cases, the MIP imaging on venous phase is particularly impressive. Look at the size of those gonadal veins. Look at the size of the veins in the pelvis and pelvic congestion. Again, very, very impressive imaging. And in this situation, perhaps uh, we will work the patient up further. We have seen some patients who we evaluate for possible gonadal vein uh, pathology because of a range of symptoms from uh, persistent dull pelvic pain, dysmenorrhea, and also these patients may have urinary tract symptoms. However, as this article notes, uh, dilated pelvic veins are often seen incidentally. So again, as I mentioned, we do not typically recommend other studies. We will do a description of dilated pelvic veins and noted in a woman and she's asymptomatic. No further imaging is necessary. And again, this is the ACR guidelines, so it's something good to remember. And I mentioned this before about renal donors. Dilated ovarian veins were found in almost half of 30 of this one series of 34 asymptomatic patients. Uh, so it's just something that's not going to be uncommon. Uh, again, another example, when you see the vessels looking like this, that's a different story. But simply seeing the pelvic veins, minimally prominent or prominent left or right gonadal vein, that alone is not going to bother me. When it looks this large and when you see this much of a cluster, it almost gives you the feel of an AV malformation, those are the cases I will comment and those are the cases where patients indeed will be symptomatic. We should also note that when you look at the gonadal vein, make certain there's no thrombosis. It's not an uncommon asymptomatic finding, but it can be acute and patients can complain of flank pain or pelvic pain. With acute gonadal vein thrombosis, you will actually treat the patients with anticoagulant therapy. 
common causes are PID or pelvic surgery. Now what else? Let's look at another area. Let's look at the gallbladder. And we typically always see the gallbladder and abdominal CT if it's there. And it's not uncommon for us to see many features. And that would include gallstones, perhaps wall calcification. But we can see other things, gallbladder polyps. We can see different densities to contrast or to the material, the, the bile. Could it be high density? We occasionally do see some mild duct dilatation. There are many things we can see, and the question is, which ones are of importance? Well, if you see gallstones, you mentioned them. Many people with gallstones are asymptomatic. Here's a lot of stones in the gallbladder. Again, we'll mention it, but you don't need to recommend further evaluation. If there are one or more visible gallstones with no associated duct dilatation, mass, or symptoms, no additional workup is necessary. If patients have right upper quadrant pain or they're having symptoms, then ultrasound would be the logical study. Now, one of the questions that often comes up is gallbladder wall calcification. Now, remember, porcelain gallbladder, dense gallbladder wall calcification, has been long associated with increased incidence of gallbladder cancer. Reality is it's not uncommon to see gallbladder wall calcifications, and it's rare to see gallbladder cancer. Uh, one study of 25,900 gallbladder specimens found calcification in 44, but only two of these patients had uh, carcinoma. So carcinoma is infrequent, but it's something we consider. And when I see gallbladder wall calcification, I will mention it and say they may want to evaluate this further, particularly in an older patient. What I have been seeing is more frequently incidental gallbladder cancers in older patients. And as we scan an older population, this will be more common. Remember, most gallbladder cancers, incidentally, are in these patients who are in their 70s and 80s years of age. The committee does not recommend. You can see gallbladder wall calcification follow-up. However, if the patient's uh, physician desires follow-up, then perhaps ultrasound is the ideal study to do. One of the other things to look at on CT we commonly see is dense contrast or what looks like dense bile. There are a number of reasons for dense bile. Patients could have hemorrhage, of course that would be patient with typically with right upper quadrant pain, but sometimes it's simply hyperconcentrated bile. Sometimes patients have had prior imaging studies, whether it's gadolinium or iodine-based studies, and it can be days later. Remember, one of the pathways of contrast excretion is through the gallbladder. So it's helpful to look at the patient's uh, medical records, see if a prior study was done. The recommendation of the ACR typically is in the absence of other findings such as wall thickening or pericholcystic changes, dense uh, bile content in the gallbladder does not warrant further evaluation. So again, I will mention the bile looks dense, but I'm not going to say much else. And if I have a reason why, I'll say the reason why. In the absence of secondary causes of gallbladder wall thickening, such as hepatitis, uh, congestive heart failure, liver disease, pancreatitis, or hyperproteinemia, uh, one would want to look at why the gallbladder wall is thickened. Now, in the cases I mentioned, like congestive failure or liver disease, it's not uncommon to see wall thickening by several millimeters. If the thickening is uniform, I'll just mention it. If the thickening is irregular, then I'm more concerned, and I will recommend further evaluation with ultrasound. 
Remember, particularly in older patients, if I see asymmetric wall thickening, then I'm really concerned this patient could potentially have a carcinoma. Carcinomas are often small. If they're picked up early, the patients do really well. If you miss them, then the patients can develop more aggressive tumors, which invade the liver, and then very high mortality rate. And here's just a nice example. You see this asymmetric wall thickening. That's not going to be just simply inflammatory. You have to worry this could be a carcinoma. You look at the coronal views, it's much more obvious. Okay? Very, very important that you're very careful on these cases. And these days, as I said, just do an ultrasound. It's easy enough to do. Now, the question sometimes also then comes, what happens if you have some fluid around the gallbladder? Is this important? Now, if patients have other conditions, patients are in failure, they have fluid overload, they have liver disease, I'm not quite concerned. But in a regular patient, particularly someone uh, who may have symptoms of abdominal pain, uh, I am concerned. So if I see fluid around the gallbladder, I need to worry this patient could have a potentially cholecystitis. And again, you want to look at the clinical history. You want to look for other findings that can explain fluid around the gallbladder. But for example, in this patient, you see gallstones, the gallbladder wall is thickened, there's some fluid around the gallbladder. This patient has acute cholecystitis. There's not much to really think about. Now, another question that comes up is, is there a maximum size for the gallbladder? Okay, well, people will say that a distended gallbladder is over four centimeters in transverse or nine centimeters longitudinally. Again, um, there can be reasons why the gallbladder looks like it's large. In the absence of right upper quadrant symptoms, physiologic distension uh, is not uncommon, particularly if the patient's been fasting. Obviously, if the patient is not fasting, then you have to worry about potentially acute acute obstruction, but again, symptoms will be there if the patient is having obstruction. But again, this four and nine centimeter measurements are something that are commonly used. Question then becomes, what about bile ducts? Is there a magic number where we begin to worry about the size of the common duct? Now, typically we're trained that you'd never see the common duct in a normal patient within the liver or intrahepatic ducts in a patient who has a gallbladder in place. If a gallbladder is not in place, uh, then you are a little bit more lenient, and some people will say up to 10 millimeters. So biliary tract dilatation is defined as a common bile duct or common hepatic duct over 6 millimeters in a patient under 60 years of age with a gallbladder present or a common duct at about 10 millimeters with a gallbladder absent. A diameter over 7 millimeters suggests bile obstruction uh, in patients without previous uh, cholecystectomy. So again, those are the measurements. Seven millimeters, gallbladder in place, you need to evaluate further. And again, depending on the imaging findings, uh, dedicated CT scan of the liver and biliary tree, perhaps MR with MRCP, or ultrasound are all viable uh, alternatives. Now, because biliary dilatation is often chronic and asymptomatic, Liver function tests can be helpful. Mild dilatation is unlikely to be associated with elevated liver function tests. And again, uh, we tend to not overemphasize very minimal prominence of the ducts in an asymptomatic patient. But again, it's something you need to use clinical judgment on. So I've looked at the gallbladder, and you can see gallbladder. We look at density, 
most cases, hyperdensity is not important. We look at wall thickening over a few millimeters. You begin to worry, particularly if it's asymmetric. That's when you really are going to worry. You look for fluid around the gallbladder, incidental finding of fluid. If patient has cirrhosis or hypoproteinemia, it's not important. If there's no other findings, perhaps further evaluation is necessary. A gallbladder over four centimeters or over nine centimeters in a coronal view, you might consider that it's dilated, but if the patient had been fasting because they're getting another examination, be it a CT or an ERCP or other imaging study, that could be a good explanation. So again, you want to be very careful about not overcalling the presence or suggesting the presence of pathology and not ordering more exams that are necessary. But again, uh, there are certain times when further evaluation will indeed be necessary. Concluding then, incidental findings, as we've discussed in other lectures and in these two parts today, are indeed common. You need to have a logical approach for dealing with these incidental findings. We've spoken about looking at vascular structures. We've spoken about the gallbladder. Practical guidelines are provided in part by the ACR guidelines. Read the article, discuss it amongst your colleagues, and come up with conclusions that you're indeed comfortable with. And in this manner, we will really be able to really maintain our practice as well and really serve our patients well. And with that, I thank you and... See you next week.